Thanks for joining Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast. I'm your host, Corinne. And I'm your host, Brittany. And we work at the National Estuarine Research Reserve, or NEAR, on Sapelo Island, a Georgia barrier island. So, Brittany, have you ever heard of a living fossil? Do you mean an organism that doesn't have any closely related living relatives, or one that's barely changed for millions of years? Okay, so maybe it's not a perfect term, but I was referring to one that hasn't changed much for a very, very long time. Oh yeah, like lampreys, coelacanths, and even gecko trees can be considered living fossils in that way. Right. So when Charles Darwin first came up with the phrase living fossil, it was because he was so surprised that living species had the same characteristics as those from millions of years ago. It's likely that these species found a habitat or lifestyle that kept them away from a lot of competition. So these species didn't have to keep adapting and changing. Lampreys and coelacanths are both fish that found unique ways to survive or specialize in their environments. Lampreys are one of only two vertebrates that never develop jaws. It also lacks scales, fins, or even limbs. Yeah, they actually almost look like eels, until you get to that mouth. Yeah, the mouth is what definitely makes them stand out. They have a circular mouth with rows of scraping or rasping teeth that basically suck the life out of fish. It sounds so creepy when you say it like that. Coelacanths are a little better. They live in the twilight zone of oceans between 500 to 800 feet deep, which could be why people don't know that they still existed until the 1930s, since we had a hard time diving that deep. Coelacanths are called passive drift feeders, and they like to eat things like fish, squid, octopus, and cuttlefish. Well, I think I have a favorite living fossil, and it isn't a fish. Okay, what is it? Horseshoe crabs! Oh yeah, I should have known. I will agree, they are so cool. Right? So for those that haven't seen a horseshoe crab before, I suggest doing a quick image search because they look pretty alien to me. They are hard-shelled brown arachnids that live in coastal waters. The Atlantic horseshoe crab, or Limulus polyphemus, for those interested in scientific names, are along the U.S. coast from Maine to Mexico. Uh, You said arachnids, so they technically aren't crabs at all. Crabs are crustaceans, and horseshoe crabs are actually related to spiders and scorpions, not crabs or shrimp at all. Right, and if you look at their underside, it kind of makes sense. I mean, these creatures have a round horseshoe-shaped carapace or upper shell that has a kind of hinged or bendable section at what would be the bottom of the horseshoe. This section connects to the abdomen, which is lined with spines and ends in a spiky tail or telson. If you were to flip the horseshoe crab over, you'd see a kind of fuzzy-looking mouth, ten walking legs, and gills that look like the pages of a book. They're actually in a class called Mirostomata, which means legs attached to the mouth. It's probably hard to come up with an accurate mental image if you've never actually seen one before, but they are amazing creatures, and they're actually really important in certain food chains. Sea turtles, like loggerheads, eat adult horseshoe crabs, but it's actually horseshoe crab eggs that other animals rely on. A few episodes ago, we talked about the amazing migrations that birds and butterflies make. One bird that has a particularly impressive migration is called the red knot, or Calidri canudus. Some of the Rufu subspecies of these shorebirds that are found in eastern North America travel from their nesting grounds in the high Arctic all the way down to Tierra del Fuego at the southern tip of South America. That's over 18,000 miles round trip. 
One particular individual that scientists had tagged with the code B95 has been nicknamed Moonbird because it traveled the equivalent of all the way to the moon and halfway back. And the only way these birds can make their incredible migrations is if they have the right fuel. One excellent food source for this trip is horseshoe crab eggs. Horseshoe crabs lay their eggs in mass along coastlines in the spring, particularly in one of the important red knot stopover locations in the Delaware Bay. So there's millions of eggs available for red knots to feast on before they continue on their migration. So it's important to have a lot of horseshoe crabs so there's a lot of food for red knots. The Delaware National Estuarine Research Reserve actually manages a team of volunteers who go out and do spawning surveys of horseshoe crabs each spring. This helps us keep an estimate on their population size. There's also population studies going on in Florida and Georgia as well. We'll actually go out here on Sapelo when horseshoe crabs are spawning in the next couple of months and tag individual crabs. It's still a fairly small-scale study, so it may not give a great picture of population size yet, but it can tell us a bit about which habitats our local horseshoe crabs use. Yeah, I remember helping you tag horseshoe crabs last year, and it's impressive to see not only how many crabs come up on the shore, but also how well they do, even when they look really beat up. I've seen some that are missing big chunks of their shells or have holes straight through their carapace, and they seem totally fine. They certainly seem to be survivors, and they have been for a very long time. Horseshoe crabs actually showed up about 200 million years before dinosaurs. Now, the Atlantic horseshoe crab species that we have today has only been around for about 20 million years. So the term living fossils that I used before isn't really the best term for them. But they aren't totally different from their relatives that evolved during the Ordovician time period nearly 500 million years ago. Oh, right. Yeah, the Ordovician. We all know when that was. Right. Sorry. Geological time is confusing. The Ordovician was from about 485 million years ago to 444 million years ago. It was a really long time ago. And part of the reason that horseshoe crabs are such good survivors and deal with such seemingly drastic damage to their bodies is because of mobile cells called amoebocytes in their blood. These amoebocytes have incredible ability to clot around bacteria, preventing it from damaging the rest of the body. The first person to notice this clotting just saw beat up horseshoe crabs on the beach and started to wonder how they survived. He took an observation and began asking questions which many people today call the process of scientific inquiry. This person happened to be a pathobiologist with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute named Dr. Fred Bang. Dr. Bang's colleague, Dr. Jack Levin, took things a little farther and realized that amoebocytes and horseshoe crabs that cause clotting can actually help people too. Dr. Levin figured out how to extract something called limulus amoebocyte lysates, or LALs, from horseshoe crab amoebocytes. These LALs are used as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's official bacterial endotoxin test for vaccines and medical devices. You see, endotoxins are found on gram-negative bacteria. Basically, if endotoxins get into someone's system, they will make you very sick, potentially lethally sick. Unfortunately, gram-negative bacteria can find their way into vaccines while they are being made. Vaccines are filtered and sterilized in production, but endotoxins can get through these processes. Currently, the best way to detect endotoxins in a batch of vaccines or on another type of implantable device is with the bacterial endotoxin test using LALs from horseshoe crabs. Today, over half a million horseshoe crabs are pulled out of the oceans each year and taken to a lab where about 30% of their blood is drained so we can extract LALs from it. The crabs are then returned to their homes where they can hopefully recuperate. 
However, some estimates suggest that 20 to 30% of the crabs die from this stressful event. We don't know the full extent of the impact that the medical industry specifically has had on horseshoe crab populations, but the Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission notes that the crab's population in New York and New England are in decline. That area also happens to be where horseshoe crab blood harvesting operations are located. There are some efforts in place to find a better method of getting LALs. Our guest today is doing some of the research on better methods for horseshoe crabs. Dr. Anthony Dellinger is the president of Kepley Biosystems Incorporated, a company doing a lot of interesting research to find what they call disruptive innovations. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Dallinger, disruptive innovations sound pretty interesting, but can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that Kepley Biosystems is looking into with these? Today, our group's funded by uh, the National Science Foundation for a diagnostic tool that is aimed at solving a major, major medical care problem, sepsis. Boldly, we want to change the standard of care in hospitals. So sepsis is caused by a variety of infections, and it is a life threatening condition that occurs when our own immune system responds to that infection by releasing chemicals into the bloodstream that cause inflammation throughout our body, they damage our organs, and they can ultimately lead to death. Sepsis is actually the leading cause of untimely death in hospitals and costs over $62 billion per year. To put this into perspective, I've listened to some of your previous shows and the runtime is about 20 minutes. Well, sepsis takes a life every 2.8 seconds. So if we do that math, that equates to about 430 deaths just during our average podcast runtime here. See, the problem is we haven't really improved our clinical ability to make faster and more informed decisions that can save a patient's life. Right now, the gold standard can take up to three days to get any results back to the doctor. And every hour that patient is not prescribed the right antibiotic, their risk of death increases by 8%. That's 8% every hour. Three days has 72 hours in it. So the formula is not promising for the patient. We really want to reduce this down to just a couple of hours and give the physician all the information that they need before the scales start to tip towards sepsis and ultimately death. Interestingly enough, the secret to this diagnostic that we're developing was actually revealed in our friend that we're talking about today, the horseshoe crab. It's really amazing that we can get such a life-saving tool from what appears to be a simple creature, but I guess we do still learn a lot from nature. You can kind of say nature is one of the medical industry's best collaborators. And in big projects like the ones you're doing with horseshoe crabs, you need partners. And you've actually worked with a few of our local partners, right? Well, Partners and collaborators are critical. You know, they're the, the backbone of emerging enterprise, um, especially when you're a small group of scientists that's really trying to change the world. You know, we couldn't have done any of this without the initial funding and trust from the National Science Foundation. But with respect to Georgia, you know, Georgia's really been amazing, and they've really ca catapulted everything that we envisioned. We believe Georgia's thinking has really facilitated our program. And that all really begins with Lance Tolan, who actually joined our team after we introduced him to the idea. Lance is uh, known for his aviation experience and his insurance acumen, having spent more than three decades in the industry as an established leader. 
Lance is seemingly connected to everyone in Georgia, and that was really helpful in facilitating meetings, fostering engagement, and really giving us the platform to work in Georgia. We've made tons of scholarly connections working on this project. This includes professors at the University of Georgia, like Dr. Mark Reese, and most notably, I would say the group at the UGA Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant that's led by Brian Flick and Lisa Gentit. Um, and also Captain Patrick at the uh, Marine Extension has been extremely helpful. And then we have the group at Jekyll Island, uh, Ben Carswell and his team were instrumental in our you know, real first meaningful foray into this research. Um, Terry Norton at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center was great to learn from, and everyone at the Georgia 4-H Tideland Center was so warm and welcoming. Um, also, the support of everyone at the Georgia DNR was key. Folks like Bill Jones III have been a huge voice and advocate for our work, and the DNR Marine Fisheries Chief, uh, Dr. Carolyn Belcher, was especially supportive, as well as uh, Lieutenant Wayne Hubbard. They really made our NC group feel at home in Georgia. The... College of Coastal Georgia have been wonderful connections. They have a great supportive team uh, that's really been exceptional. We were actually able to work alongside and publish uh, with one of their professors, uh, David Stesik, um, and his students during our earlier work at Jekyll Island. Um, we also held a wonderful symposium at Savannah State and uh, made some lasting academic connections with um, Dr. Sue Eubanks and Dr. Carol Pride there. Um, really, there have been lots and lots of partnerships, lots and lots of friendships that's been built through this process. And uh, we couldn't have done it. We couldn't have done everything that we set out to do without this kind of support system that Georgia gave us. And, and this list goes on and on. And I know I left out many people. But yeah, Georgia connections have been tremendous. And I really echo the thought that I believe Georgia is thinking about horseshoe crab sustainability better than just about anywhere else on the eastern shoreboard. It's really nice to hear that so many people have been helpful and involved with your research. But I know the work never actually stops, especially when it comes to education and conservation of certain species. Particularly invertebrates, since they aren't as cuddly and cute as some other species and therefore usually don't get that much attention. What drew your focus towards horseshoe crabs in the first place? What drew our attention to horseshoe crabs? Well, believe it or not, it was a phone call. We were working on this alternative bait for the trap fishing industry. You know, like lobsters and crabs. Well, lobster and crab trap fishing requires a key ocean species. It's called a forage fish. We don't typically eat them, but they're used to lure crustaceans like lobsters and crabs to a trap. The presence in the population of forage fish in the ocean is critical because they feed all of the ocean species as well as the connected co coastal ecosystem species. Um, they really keep our oceans vibrant and thriving. Uh, we believe that we could make a more sustainable solution, you know, one that did not involve, you know, using one fish to catch another fish. So one day we're in the lab looking at molecules coming off a of forage fish, trying to figure out which one is the most olfactory stimulating to crustaceans. And I get this phone call and the person on the other end said, does your bait work on eels and whelks? And, you know, honestly, I didn't know the answer to that question. I didn't even know that eels and whelks were a huge fishing industry. But it turned out that this industry uses horseshoe crabs as bait. 
I was lucky enough at the time to have two undergraduate interns. Walid Ali, he was a student at Columbia, and Jordan Gannon, she was a student at High Point University, and I gave them a homework assignment. I asked them to go home and prepare a write-up about horseshoe crab challenges, and you know, all the rest has really been history. It's really surprising that there are so many different ways that research questions can come up. So just what are you hoping to do with horseshoe crabs? Well, today, our changing ocean temperatures, the eroding coastline, you know, ocean acidification, um, wild capture and biomedical bleeding, you know, and their use in the bait industry for eels and whelks, as I mentioned, um, all of these factors have really strained the horseshoe crab population as a species. And, you know, these ancient arthropods are robust. They've survived every extinction event here on Earth. And I'm not joking when I say with the exception of potentially humans, which could be the animal's downfall. You know, we always believe that they could be held sustainably in captivity, you know, through aquaculture. I mean, that would require an optimal environment. It would require the best food. And it would require a new paradigm for bleeding, you know, a way that didn't cause any mortality. We wanted to, you know, change the way that these animals provide this tremendous donation to humans and medicine. So what we did was we developed a program that could supply this horseshoe crab LAL, this limulus amoebocyte lysate that is derived from their blood this material that meets all the requirements for the biomedical industry to ensure all the injectable drugs that we have are safe. And we wanted to do it in a way that would not impact these wild populations anymore. And really it was through captivity, keeping the animals in husbandry, providing them a safe, stable environment, and really giving them the precise, scientifically optimized and engineered feed that would allow us to procure this LAL from a very small fraction of the total crabs that were harvested each year. And eventually, year in, year out, we could continue to do this with this same cohort of crabs, 10, 15 years, keeping them alive, keeping them vibrant, and bleeding them with very low impact methods. And ultimately, we could you know, eliminate the need for wild capture. And immediately start helping to restore the wild populations that are in our oceans. Since we're pretty fond of horseshoe crabs, it would be great to minimize our impacts to wild populations. How are your studies progressing? Is anything interesting so far? Yeah, we've really had a lot of interesting findings. Um, and arguably, when we began this process, no one really knew what a healthy horseshoe crab was. We now have a really really strong understanding of their biology. Um, we also knew that many people before us had tried to keep these animals in aquaculture, but time and time again, it was met with failure. And we think that our approach differed. It was smarter um, than all of the other previous approaches. And it was because we looked at this solution from a different perspective. You know, I'm a nanoscientist and not necessarily anyone on our team was a horseshoe crab expert or an aquaculture expert. We did have team members that had worked in the space periodically throughout their career. We've had team members that worked in medicine throughout their career, but thinking differently really allowed us to see the problem and address that problem. You, you really see 
most of aquaculture today is really concerned with getting an animal to plate size. So it can be harvested in a quick and timely manner and ultimately delivered to the grocery store. Well, these approaches are centrally focused on making that animal larger, faster, um, not, not necessarily keeping the animal healthy, vibrant, optimized. You know, with the horseshoe crab, we want to do these things. We want the animal to be healthy and vibrant. We are concerned principally about their well-being. And that was a driver of all of our efforts because we want to keep these animals for 10 to 15 years. We knew the animal had a long lifespan, and we knew that if we did low-impact bleeding and optimize the animal's health and well-being, then we would really create a platform that would enable us to eliminate wild capture. And, you know, we really believe that keeping these animals thriving in captivity is possible and it can be done for more than a decade and it can allow this animal to continue to make this precious donation to modern medicine and human safety without you know the need for ever having to harm them or affect that wild capture population that sounds like a really challenging balance to manage keeping them happy and healthy but also extracting lals for human use so what are the next steps for your research? Next steps, you know, there's there's always a lot of next steps, but you know, I think principally right now our National Science Foundation phase 2 grant, you know, really just got going and we continue to think very scholarly about the aquaculture operation and the health of horseshoe crabs and the vibrancy of horseshoe crabs and how to keep these animals thriving in captivity. And we do that here in our Greensboro facility through the Gateway Research Park um, and the Joint School of Nanoscience and Nanoengineering. Um, we hope to really take that platform, aquaculture platform, and begin to align with another partner and expand this smaller scale operation into a size that you know we can eventually begin to start validating the aquaculture approach as a new way to collect LAL and avoid having to do wild capture. Hopefully we'll find a home for this operation in Georgia. I really think it's really the most, it's, it's the best place for something like this and it's where our roots were and it was where we got started. So we'd really like that. I mean, I think that would really be great. But going back to, to sepsis, you know, as I, as I started out, you know, and, and with this National Science Foundation funding, you know, the, the key to our diagnostic tool really relies on that powerful blue blood of the horseshoe crab. So with this grant, we're continuing to work on refining and optimizing this clinical tool using a sustainable form of aquaculture-derived LAL. And we hope that we can change the standard of care in all hospitals, provide a real solution to the leading cause of hospital death as well as introduce methods that will help preserve the future effectiveness of our antibiotics. You know, as the rise of um, pathogen antimicrobial resistance continues to, you know, unravel global healthcare experts um, and draws into question what is the future efficacy of our existing and limited supply of antibiotics going to look like? You know, a, a test like we're developing not only gives an answer early in the bloodstream infection pathway well before clinical symptoms start to present and well before we start tipping towards sepsis, but it also rapidly provides information as to what antibiotic best treats what the infective agent is in that bloodstream infection. So we kind of avoid the, the, the current circumstances of empirical medicine where it's broad spectrum antibiotics. 
give our most powerful antibiotics at time zero. And that's really contributing to um, the rise of antimicrobial resistance today. I'd really love to hear more about what you find. We obviously couldn't cover all the in and outs of your research and the work that you're doing with the horseshoe crabs. That would probably take a bit longer than the length of our podcast. But is there a good way for our listeners to keep up with your research? Definitely. Visit our website, uh, www.keplybiosystems.com. And uh, we're, we're really planning on, as our phase two moves forward, uh, to, to really have a better social media presence. Um, you know, more updates on, on our Facebook or Instagram. Um, th- th- those sort of ways that we can kind of connect and engage with in- interested folks like, like your listeners. Um, hopefully doing more, you know, podcasts like this and, and kind of talking about horseshoe crabs more. But if you go to our website, keplybiosystems.com, you can see all of our social media links at the bottom there. And you can also see our news and our ongoings. And then obviously, um, you know, my email is there and, um, you know, reaching out and talking if there's if there's interest in it or um, if anyone uh, would like to learn more about the horseshoe crab or what we're doing. That would be a, an, another great way for you to um, to follow up on on everything that's happening here. We'll definitely try to keep up with how things are going. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anthony. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, this has been great. And um, I love the fact that this is a, a, a Georgia podcast and, you know, everything that we really did kind of started out there. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a fabulous experience working with everyone in Georgia as we go through this process. Um, and, and if the work that we're talking about has really inspired any of uh, the listeners today, you know, like I said, drop me an email, send us a message on our website. I'd, I would really love to hear from everyone. Um, and I obviously love talking about horseshoe crabs. We'll include a link to the Kepley Biosystems website in our show notes, as well as a couple of articles with more information about horseshoe crabs. Maybe we should also share some information about that famous crab artist. Who's that? Leonardo da Pinci, of course. (laughs) Or maybe we can include info on the horseshoe crab's favorite game. Which game? Salmon says. (laughs) For more information about any of the topics we covered today, or to submit your question that may be featured in our upcoming episodes, please email us at signer.socials at gmail.com. That's S-I-N-E-R-R dot socials at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast brought to you by the Sapelo Island National Estuarine Research Reserve. Please check back for more episodes released on the 1st and the 15th of each month. And that's the Sapelo Sound.